Well, good morning, church. Grateful to be back in the pulpit this week, a.k.a. music stand, uh, to be able to preach God's Word to you. If you haven't already, let's turn to John chapter 4 in the New Testament, and let's consider this story that Mark read for us. I'm thankful for Casey's leading in uh, the Prayer for the Nations, giving us a good uh, weekly reminder uh, that St. Patty's Day is this week. Uh, good opportunity to pray for the, the nation of Ireland and um, some missionaries in Ireland, in, in Ireland, on the island. Um, but this past week, there was another uh, holiday, not just a national holiday, but an international holiday, International Women's Day. And I want you to know, those of you Uh, that are guests with us. This text was not planned because it happened to be International Women's Day, but nevertheless, it uh, comes at a timely uh, season, uh, as we considered last week from Ecclesiastes 3, the times and seasons of the Lord. Uh, it's, It's timely. And I would put forward to you that Jesus uh, was probably celebrating International Women's Day more often uh, than most in his day and age and in his culture, as you may have heard even in the text that was read already. And this is one of those, Jesus caring deeply uh, for this one specific woman, but women in, in general and um, specifically ministers to her. International Women's Day is sought to highlight the equality of men and women and and celebrating the accomplishments of women, and that's great, uh, fine, and dandy. But what Jesus really cares more about, not just the physical accomplishments Uh, but the spiritual heart of the matter. And Jesus is going to go beyond just the physical uh, in this story and really get to the heart, uh, aiming to get to the heart of this woman because He doesn't care just about what she accomplishes here on this earth, but He cares about where she's going to spend eternity. And that leads Jesus to, to do what He does in this passage. I forgot my Bible. How could I have done that under my chair? John 4 uh, is following uh, a a section, uh, is kind of the close of a section where Jesus, it was said of him in John chapter 2 at the end of the chapter that he did not entrust himself to those who didn't truly trust in him. He knew the heart of man, and so he was not going to entrust himself and allow the crowds to gather around and this, that, or the other with those who would one day abandon him. And then it proceeded to show individuals like Nicodemus, a religious leader at the, at the top religious level of life in Jerusalem and Judaism, um, seeking and asking questions of the Lord, but really not truly trusting in Jesus as the Messiah, as He proclaimed to be and as He presented Himself. Uh, And then all the way down now to John chapter 4, where we have not a religious leader, but a religious outcast, Uh, uh, the sinful Samaritan woman, if you will, which shows us the 
the wide scope of people that Christ came for, the wide scope of God's love for people of all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all languages, all castes, all all, uh, groups of people, from religious leader in Nicodemus to the sinful Samaritan woman here in John 4, there is a, a place for all of us in that scope to know that the Lord loves us, to know that Jesus came for us, and to know that He, he cares for us. In fact, the song that we just sang highlights uh, the ministry of Jesus here in John 4, where we sang, Who is like the Lord our God who humbled Himself with the broken to dwell? That's what John 4 is all about. And, and Jesus is aiming to present Himself not only to this woman, but to all of John's readers and to those of us who are reading the Gospel of John some 2,000 years after it was written, Jesus is aiming to highlight that He and He alone is the source of eternal life and that He is the object of true worship. Jesus alone is the source of eternal life and He is the object of true worship. If, if you don't leave with anything else but that, that would be enough. If this were not a sermon and it was a devotional, that's, that's what I would give you right there. But there's plenty more to consider, hopefully, that will make that truth uh, more evident in these pages, these lines of Scripture, and uh, more applicable to your life. You've heard it read once, but uh, as we're considering this text, I want you to look back again in the first few verses at this setting. John is setting the stage for what this conversation that is to happen between Jesus and this woman of Samaria. And in the previous chapter, uh, Jesus' ministry was increasing in popularity, so much so that travelers would go up the Jordan River, see how many people Jesus was baptizing, and then compare that to the decreasing amount of people that John the Baptist was baptizing and say, what's up? And, and more and more people were becoming aware of Jesus' ministry uh, during this time. And that also brought with it a bit of danger, a bit of risk uh, that the Pharisees and the religious leaders would want to squelch that, even imprisoning Him or even killing Him as they often tried throughout the Gospels. And so when Jesus learned in John 4.1 that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, skip down to verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Not only was he wise, but he was living in accordance with God's will, going where the Lord would lead him, where the Holy Spirit would guide and direct him. But John gives us a a parenthetical note in verse 2 that helped us earlier in John chapter 3 when considering uh, what was meant when John and Jesus were baptizing. John lets us know he who was there says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Uh, That was important enough for John to note uh, to us that Jesus Himself was 
not the one immersing people under these waters uh, as people were gathering to him, but his disciples were the ones baptizing these individuals in these waters. Those who came in repentance and faith, lest they think that Jesus himself baptizing them gave them some trump card on anybody else that the disciples baptized or that John baptized or that John's disciples baptized, trying to bring uh, equity even to, to that area of religious life. But John 4, or John 4, 4 says that he had to pass through Samaria. And some uh, would go, uh, would commentate on this verse saying that he didn't have to, but he chose to. And that may be true, uh, highlighting him submitting to God's will, and I think there's an aspect of that, but this was the route. When he was going from southern Jerusalem um, to uh, northern Galilee, this would have been the route that he would have gone, straight up on the west side of the Jordan uh, through Samaria, right by Mount Gerizim, as we'll see play into the story a little bit later. The only other way would have been to uh, cross over the Jordan River, go up north on that side, and, and then go around. It'd just be like me saying, for me to get from here to Austin, I've unfortunately got to go through Waco on that wretched trip to both of, through both of those towns. But I could go the long way around. It'd actually be more pretty and more enjoyable uh, that way around. Those of you who've traveled on your motorcycle that way, uh, but this is what Jesus is saying. This is the shortest route. This is the route where every, everyone was. This is what John records for us. And it, so he comes to a town of Samaria called Sakar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. John helps his original readers in the first century, uh, as does he help us reading 2,000 years ago, can realize the importance of this town of Sakar near the town of Shechem, near Mount Gerizim, where Jacob had a well from his lifetime and passed this well off to his son Joseph at the end of his life. In, uh, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 48, verse 22. This, in fact, is where Israel would later carry the bones of Joseph out of Egypt and uh, into the Promised Land and bury them there in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32. That's important for uh, knowledge of what the woman that Jesus is going to interact with is, is going to bring up. This is an important historical place in the life of Israel. It's an important place of worship where Abraham worshiped originally when God first called him in Genesis chapter 12. Just when you're reading through Genesis and, and some of the Pentateuch books, look for the city of Shechem and see its importance in that place. This is an important place of worship, an important place in Israel's history, and uh, a place uh, where water had been drawn for thousands of years up to this point. And Jesus 
wearied from his journey just from Jerusalem halfway towards Galilee about, as he gets to Sakar, he's weary. And that should encourage some of us who uh, are weary as well. For if the Son of God, who became the Son of Man, is weary in the midst of his life and needs a drink, that ought to encourage those of us who find ourselves physically weary, even in the midst of doing the Lord's work. Jesus was following the Holy Spirit, guiding Him and directing Him to this town and to this place. It was a weary journey in that arid place of the world world without a 7-Eleven on every corner to stop in and get a Slurpee. He was weary, and so when he gets to this place, he, he felt like I felt yesterday about the sixth hour, which is the noon hour, when after it's 85 in March, I had the wise idea to aerate my acre backyard. And any of you who have done that uh, could have told me beforehand how hard work that was because I thought it'd be no, no big deal. I was literally to the point that I thought if I pushed one more row, I might pass out and Joy might, you know, come in the back and see me laying out there uh, with that thing, you know, continuing on to my neighbor's house, just weary, needing a drink, needing to be reminded of this truth myself yesterday, that there are times when we get weary, but not just physically from doing yard work. Sometimes we're weary in doing ministry. And Jesus himself found himself weary in doing ministry. And yet that's okay. He continued in the midst of weariness in ministry, being strengthened by the Holy Spirit, taking a moment to pause and to take a season to take a break so that he could continue doing ministry long term. And that, we need to remember that. Those of us who are weary to remember that the Son of God, who became the Son of Man, showed His humanity and that He was weary. And that even sometimes in the midst of ministry, we can get weary. We need to depend upon the Holy Spirit for help and the physical sustenance that the Lord gives us to be able to continue in ministry long term. And so there's the setting. And verse 7 continues and says that a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now immediately in the readers of John's audience, they are immediately realizing that this story had taken a turn. When a woman from Samaria is introduced who is now coming at the noon hour to draw water. Not only is she coming at a time when you wouldn't come to draw water, she's coming alone when they would normally come in groups to draw water uh, at this time for safety and security. But she's coming alone and meets Jesus there who is at, at the well. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, on this International Women's Week, we might read in the 21st century a man telling a woman, give me a drink to be quite rude, um, quite, quite chauvinistic, if you will. And 
similar to what we addressed back in John chapter 2 when Jesus' mother um, came to him and said, they've run out of wine at the wedding. And he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? Like, what in the world? We read Jesus' words and may not think he's all about International Women's Day, when in reality, him actually speaking to her is showing that he cares for women, cares for Samaritan women more than everyone else in his culture. For no other Jew, no other Jewish man would have spoke to that woman, no other Jewish man or woman would have talked or engaged with the Samaritan woman, but just Jesus saying, give me a drink, is showing that He values her, He loves her, He cares for her, He, uh, he, lo- yeah, he cherishes her. And so let's not take our 21st century cultural context and imply it on this first century document thinking that Jesus is rude and chauvinistic and throw out Jesus and the rest of the Bible as patriarchal. No, He is loving her well. But you wonder where His disciples are. John tells us, for He was one of them, and He remembers going on this journey in verse 8, for His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So they're all away. Jesus is alone. The Samaritan woman is alone which could seem like a sketchy situation, but uh, this is Jesus we're talking about. Nothing sketchy ever happens. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it? Just to show you that even Jesus asking for a drink is countercultural. The woman looks at him and is flabbergasted and says, how is it that emphatically you a Jew asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. And I'm reading it emphatically according to some of the Greek tools that I was using this week are saying that these words are emphatic on her lips. She does not understand why this Jewish man is addressing her, a Samaritan woman. And she just asked him, what in the world? John helps us, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That is sufficient enough to know uh, and to understand this story. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. God's Word is inspired. It is inerrant. It is authoritative, but it's also sufficient. That would be enough for us to know all we need to know. But we happen to know more uh, than that from the rest of God's Word and from history regarding the, the Samaritans, why they have no dealings, why the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. For in Israel's history, when uh, Israel was a united kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon, it then broke and divided into the northern and southern tribes, the northern Israel and the southern Judah. And in 722 B.C., the northern tribes of Israel were taken captive by Assyria. And Assyria took out many of the Jews and imported many of the Assyrians, and they began to intermarry. 
and intermingle with one another, not being distinct any longer, not holding fast to worshiping Yahweh as the one true and living God, but Jews intermarrying with Assyrians and beginning to take their idol worship into their life, and, um, and they became known as the Samaritans. Later on in Israel's history, in 586, the southern tribes uh, of Judah were taken into exile over in to Babylon. And yet years later in 522, they were allowed to return back to Israel to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple, to worship Yahweh as He alone is to be worshipped. And it was even during that season as these southern tribes of Judah were coming back to rebuild uh, the temple of Jerusalem, that when the Samaritans came down to want to help, they wouldn't let them have any part of it in the book of Ezra. For they wanted to keep their worship of, of the Lord pure after being in exile for many years of discipline and saw the idolatry that the Samaritans were, uh, could potentially bring into the worship of the Lord there. And so that's the background. And, and because of that then, the Samaritans... While they couldn't help rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, they also then rebuilt or, or built their own temple on Mount Gerizim where they would worship uh, as they saw fit. One of the other things that's uh, in, important to note in, in regards to Samaritans is that they uh, would have really held to the first five books of the Old Testament, not the entirety of the Old Testament as God had revealed Himself, uh, the rest of history. Uh, for they would have seen then how uh, God was to be worshipped in Jerusalem, there in the temple that Solomon built. But no, they didn't hold to that. They interpreted things differently, and so they built a temple in Mount Gerizim and worshipped the Lord there. And so, that helps us then to understand the emphatic um, misunderstanding of, of why Jesus is engaging this woman from Samaria. But then Jesus in verse 10 answers her and says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. If you knew, if you only knew the gift of God, which meant she didn't know the gift of God. She didn't know the gift of God that we know as salvation. She didn't know what true repentance and true forgiveness felt like. She didn't know what it meant to have a relationship with the Lord, to be reconciled to God. She didn't know, and Jesus was saying, if you only knew the gift of God, and if you only knew who it was who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. And so Jesus is saying, you don't, you don't realize who I am. You don't, you don't know the one true God. You don't, know, you don't have a relationship with the one true God. And he brings up this idea of 
living water. And, and living water in uh, the Bible, uh, or, or living water really has, like I said back in John chapter 3, an image that both has a cultural understanding but also a biblical understanding. And so as a cultural understanding, when she is at this well and hears that this man knows about living water, she's immediately thinking uh, about a fresh running uh, stream of water. For in that area of the world, in that time of the world, there would have been kind of three kinds of water storage or, 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 or sources of water. Living water, which would have been running, flowing, fresh water. Think of a, a brook, a stream. You could put your water bottle in, fill it up. No tablets to purify it while you're hiking and camping. You know, just drinking straight from the stream. Then you've got, secondly, a well uh, like Jacob's well that had been there for thousands of years. Just think of the generations that had drank from that well that's supposedly still there today, pr providing water. That would have been the second best source of water. And then you would have had something like a cistern, like a, a hole dug out, a pit dug out, plastered hard to be able to store water. And so here she is coming to this second best source of water because there's no first best source of living water nearby. She's coming here to get a drink of water. And this man says to her, if you would have known who I am, you would have asked me for living water. And she's thinking, who, who do you think you are? You, you know a source of living water that not even our father Jacob nor anyone since Jacob has known about in this area. Okay, sure. Look, just look. That's what she responds back. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Really, she's thinking only on the horizontal uh, physical realm at this point. Water from the well, living water. You have nothing to draw water with. What, what, are you, what are you even talking about? There's no stream within a day's journey anywhere close to here. Who do you think you are saying this? But Jesus is not talking about water on a horizontal, physical realm. He's talking about living water on a vertical, spiritual realm. And that's where the Old Testament helps us. Uh, and while she might not have been as aware of some of these verses, John's readers are. Uh, she may not have known Jeremiah 2.13 or 17.13 that I'll read for you in a moment, but, but John's readers would have been aware of them. And, and I want to do you one, one added help uh, to this, because some of you, as due diligence and as a matter of devotion, you're spending time in God's Word daily, and you are in our Bible reading plan, and I just want to commend you for that. 
And if you're doing that, some of you that are attempting to read the whole Bible in one year are in the midst of Leviticus. And you're about ready to quit. And I just want to encourage you to continue to keep going. It is worth it. And even in the midst of Leviticus, you can find uh, connections to our John 4 passage here. Because even in Leviticus, uh, we read in 1136, uh, we also read in 14.5 and in 14.50 that under fresh living water, they were to uh, sacrifice a dove and that the water would not become unclean, but uh, that sacrifice would be made clean in its presence. That living water that offers cleansing is the idea throughout the whole Old Testament. We see it most clearly in a passage like Jeremiah 2.13, where Jeremiah, the Lord through Jeremiah rebukes His people. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters, And instead, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, again, Jeremiah, the Lord through Jeremiah is not talking about physical earthly water there. He's talking about vertical spiritual water. They've taken the fountain of living waters, who is the Lord, and here the Son, Jesus Christ, And they've replaced that with not the second best water from a well. They've replaced that with the last cistern that's been plastered. And not only that, but their cistern is cracked and it can't even hold water. Essentially saying what you're doing to try to have a relationship with the Lord is broken and will never work. And you've given up on having a relationship with the one true and living God by worshiping Him and in, in spirit and in truth, in worshiping Him as He saw fit. He says, you've forsaken Me for this system. You've forsaken Me in a relationship with Me for these rules. You've forsaken Me for these idols. You've forsaken Me for this other way. Or Jeremiah seventeen thirteen, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake You shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from You shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. This this was true of this woman at the well. She too, along with most of the Samaritans, I believe, had forsaken the living water, the the source, the fountain of the living water. The, The Lord Himself had forsaken having a relationship with Him. We too, being born into sin and sinners ourselves have forsaken the source of living water, the Lord Himself. Which is why Jesus came in the first place. Came to live a sinless life, never forsaking His Father, the Lord, never forsaking the source of living waters, and then sacrificing Himself for all of us who had forsaken the Lord so that we could be brought back into a relationship with Him. This is what Jesus is getting at when He's speaking of 
living waters. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate to her, something on a vertical spiritual realm, not a horizontal physical realm. This would be important for throughout the Scriptures, both in the Old and in the New Testament. It talks about, in Isaiah 55, it has an invitation not only for this woman, but an invitation for John's readers, an invitation for us. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus is inviting, or the Old Testament invites us to come and to drink of these living waters. Jesus, here in the New Testament, invites this woman to come and to drink of His living waters for free, without any price. And then we get, you could fast forward all the way to the book of Revelation for that those promises find their fulfillment in the first coming of Jesus, but also the second coming of Jesus and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. So that there in Revelation 21, verse 6, Jesus says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And there in the throne room of heaven, the angel in Revelation 22, verse 1, showed John a river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We need physical water to survive. We can't go more than three days without it. But for us to be able to enjoy heaven and eternal life, a relationship with the Lord and to be with God in His presence in the new heavens and the new earth, we have to have living water. We have to have water that comes from the Lord Himself, comes from Jesus Christ, comes from His very Holy Spirit. But this woman is only thinking physically, and she thinks Jesus is something like the old Ozarka man coming to her door to to sell her better water than Jacob's well offers. Um, Asking if he's greater than our father Jacob. But Jesus says to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is trying to get at her heart in this moment. Saying, I know you're physical, physically thirsty, and that's why you came to the well. In fact, that's why I stopped at the well too. But are you spiritually thirsty? Saying to this woman, as we'll get into the passage a little bit more, Are you satisfied with this life that you've been living? Have all of your religious efforts done for you what you thought they would? Are you enjoying a relationship with the one true God? Or have all of those even religious efforts still left you spiritually thirsty? 
still longing for a living water. And I, John is helping his audience to ask themselves that question. I, I just want to ask us that question. Have you come to this place seeking to try to do a bunch of religious things? Trying to satisfy that spiritual thirst but never found it satisfied? Never found your spiritual thirst quenched and still longing and still looking for that thing that would cover over and wash and cleanse you of your sins so that you could stand before God? Jesus is saying, I'm that living water. I, I, I can, I'm the only one that can quench that thirst. For I've never sinned, and I, in this story, will die for you. For us, I have died for you, and I rose from the dead, offering all who believe in me eternal life. If you've come trying to satisfy your vertical spiritual thirst with a host of different things and still found yourself spiritually thirsty, look to Christ. Don't look horizontally for a bunch of do this and don't do this. Look to Jesus who did it for you. Look to Jesus who did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And repent. Repent of your thirst. Repent of your sin. And ask Him to cleanse you with with His own blood that is the living water that can, that can cleanse you. But if, you, if you're a Christian and, and you've come to that point, point that I've just described and, and you confessed your thirst and your sin to the Lord and He satisfied your thirst with Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit and salvation, have you then turned again to physical waters to satisfy you in this life? in some form or fashion, running back to the same old wells that you used to run back to, to, to drink from, to get physical, thinking that it would satisfy you spiritually. Let me encourage you, Christian, to confess that to the Lord this morning. And don't keep running to the same physical wells that you think are going to satisfy you. They never will Run to Christ, who despite what your physical thirst might be in this earth, He will satisfy you spiritually and will enable you to endure whatever physical thirst you're facing. I don't have time to name them all out, but He can satisfy you in the midst of those. And the woman is only, she's fallen prey to thinking only physically and says, said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You know about a stream? You know about a brook nearby that I can go and get living water from that's better than Jacob's well? Tell me where that stream is so that I can go there. I wouldn't have to walk all the way outside the city to come to this well. Tell me, tell me where that is. And Jesus realizes that she doesn't fully understand. In this section, up to this point, Jesus has been revealing her identity and her need for living water. And that's one of the points I 
may have for you up on the screen. Up to this point, Jesus has been revealing her identity as a woman, as a Samaritan, as one who is thirsty, as one who is in need of physical water, but one who is in need of something more spiritual, living water. He's been revealing to her her lack in, in and of herself to save herself, but she hasn't realized it yet. While at the same time, Jesus has been revealing His ability and His alone to provide living water or eternal life. Well, Jesus is going to move from revealing her identity and need for living water and revealing His ability to provide living water. He's going to move from there to be more specific. And here He's going to reveal her inability and her need for true worship while at the same time revealing His identity as a prophet, as a Messiah, and as the object of true worship. Jesus is going to get specific and reveal her inability, her own specific sin, and her need for true worship. In verse 18, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. It seems like a change of subject, but what Jesus is just simply trying to do is to reveal her specific need. Having revealed her identity and her need previously, she didn't get it. She was only thinking on a physical, horizontal realm. So now Jesus is going to try to get again to the heart of the issue, dive deeper to try to get her to see vertically, spiritually, and he speaks to her current, current uh, living situation. Go call your husband and come here. And immediately her heart is, is pricked. And she has to audible. She has to pivot. And, and she responds in verse 17, I have no husband. To which Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, I just want you to imagine you in this scene. Jesus is trying to get to the heart of this woman, and he says to her, go call your husband, knowing that she has no husband now, that she's had five husbands before this, that likely highlights her sinful lifestyle up to that point. For later on, the passage will, the woman will say, Jesus told me everything I did. Not, Jesus told me everything that happened to me. That there were five men that divorced me, and five men that committed adultery on me, and five men that abandoned me. No, she says, Jesus told me everything I did in this story. I want you to just put yourself in this story and consider what Jesus would need to say to you to get your attention. I don't know what he would say, go and call your what? Go and bring up your schedule for me. Go and let me talk to your boss. 
Go and let me talk to your spouse. Go and let me talk to... I don't know what he would bring up for you where he's trying to get at the heart, but you do. You do. What Jesus is doing here is prefiguring the work of the Holy Spirit that he's going to describe in the coming chapters of John, that the Holy Spirit is going to be given to convict us of sin uh, in the future. And Jesus is God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's going to send us his Son to convict of sin. And so what is it that Jesus might say to you that would get to the heart of the issue? Highlighting your sin in your life so that you would stop thinking just about physical life and start thinking about spiritual life. And just consider that for a moment. And allow the Holy Spirit to convict you rightly of your sin as this woman is immediately convicted of her sin. The woman said in that moment where Jesus pricks her heart regarding the sin in her life, she's gone from horizontal to vertical, the woman responds and says, I perceive that you are a prophet. You're not just a Jew like I thought you were when I got to this well. You're a prophet. You told me everything that I just did in that one conversation. And Jesus, that's 100% true of Jesus. He is a prophet. He speaks the truth, but he's much more than that. And she still is yet to realize that. She still is yet to realize that. But knowing that he's a prophet, she... She goes on then and has a question about worship. Okay, you've convicted me in my heart. I realize now this is not just, we're not just talking about physical water. We're talking about worship and sin in my life. We're talking about living water, eternal life. Okay then, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So which is it, Jesus? If you're a prophet and, and you speak the truth and you know my heart, then, then tell me, who's right? The Jews who worship in Jerusalem or the Samaritans? Just tell me and I'll go do it. I'll stay here in, on Mount Gerizim and I'll worship or I'll go down to Mount Zion in Jerusalem and I'll worship. Tell me which, which worship is, is true, which way am I to go? And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me. He commands her, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In verse 22, he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. You don't even know who the one true and living God is. Because you've neglected the full counsel of God's Word in the Old Testament. You have neglected the right worship of God in Jerusalem. You're worshiping on Mount Gerizim, which you don't even know. Yet we, the Jews, in verse 22 again, we are worshiping what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. For God had chosen the Jews 
to reveal Himself so that they would be a light to the nations, that all would come to the Lord through them in the way that they were to worship. But Jesus says in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is, listen, He's seeking such people to worship Him. What a sentence. That the Father on that day was seeking someone like the Samaritan woman to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not on a specific mountain, but in spirit and truth. To confess her sin and believe in the Son of God who offered her eternal life. And the same is true today. It's true that the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. For God, it says in verse 24, is spirit. And those who worship Him, listen, must worship in spirit and truth. It's an absolute. Worship for the Christian is not based on a city or a building or a ritual. Worship for the Christian is in spirit and in truth. It's according to the truth of God's Word, and it's done in the spiritual realm and helped by the very Holy Spirit whom God has given to us for all who have repented and believed. And the woman said to him, essentially she wasn't satisfied with his answer. Okay, if you really don't know the answer of which mountain we're to be worshiping on, then I know, she says, that the Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ, and when He comes, He'll tell us. He'll, he'll tell me. When, when He finally comes, if you don't know, you may be a prophet, and you may have pricked my heart for a moment, but when the Messiah comes, He'll tell us who's right. He'll tell us which mountain we should worship on. He'll tell us which of us has the right worship. To which Jesus responds and says, I who speak to you am He. I am Him whom you're waiting for. And I just told you, you need to worship Me. You need to repent of your sin and turn and worship Me. For I am the source of all living waters. I am the source of eternal life. Jesus reveals not only her inability because of her sin and her need for true worship, not worship done on a mountain in this way or that way, but true worship of Jesus Christ in the Spirit and the truth. But Jesus also reveals His identity, not only as a prophet who speaks the truth and convicts of sin, but also as the Messiah the promised one, the anointed one, the chosen one, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. Jesus has revealed this to him, to her and said to her, I am the object of true worship. I and I alone am the object of true worship. And at this point, she finally gets it. She went from thinking only physically to thinking spiritually and realizing how this prophet 
was able to tell her everything she ever did because he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And you can see her response, a response that we'll look back at next week uh, as, as this is part one of, of part two. Jesus then, his just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking to a woman. Again, Jesus saying, give me a drink, was lovingly engaging her, intentionally showing kindness to her and speaking with her, so much so that the disciples came back with their Kroger bags full of groceries and were like, couldn't even say it. What is he doing? Talking to a Samaritan woman at the well. But no, it said, John reports who was there. He reports, no one said what we were thinking. What do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? But look at the woman's response. Jesus will deal with the disciples' ignorance next week. But look at the woman's response. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, remember, come and see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then they went out of the town and were coming to him. The same invitation. Old Testament in Isaiah. Jesus' invitation to this woman, come. Same invitation that we see in Revelation, come. All who are thirsty. This woman had drank from the spiritual well that is Jesus. And in the midst of Jesus telling her everything she had ever done, she wanted more. That's not how we often feel when someone brings up the sin in our life. We want less and we want to point out the sin in their life and bless them as they've blessed us. But when Jesus spoke to her, she wanted more. And she was still thirsty. She wanted more. She had drank and she wanted to go and tell everyone else who was spiritually thirsty from their empty worship on Mount Gerizim of a God that they didn't even know and said, come and get you some of this. It's not a brook. It's not a stream. It's not Ozarka. It's the living water who is the Lord Jesus himself. Come and drink. And all of that thirstiness spiritually that you've been feeling will be quenched once and for all. And you'll never want to, you'll never drink anything the same as that. She drinks and she goes and invites everyone else to drink as well. And so I want to invite you, come and drink. If you have yet to drink of the living water from the source that is the Lord Jesus who died and rose from the dead, knowing that you're thirsty and have sinned against God, come and drink. Simply repent of your sins. Ask Christ to quench your thirst, forgive your sin, cleanse you of your unrighteousness, and trust that He can, for He alone died and rose from the dead. And if you have trusted Christ, and you've gone again to the physical waters to try to satisfy you again this past week, abandon them 
like she abandoned her water jar that day. Say no more. Confess your water jars that you've been trying to fill up with something of this earth to try to satisfy you and cover up over your sin. Abandon them. Confess them to someone else. Leave them behind and run to Christ today again. And find that He will satisfy you. And along the way, as we're sent out to be the church in the world, would you then invite everyone that comes across your path, come and drink. Ask them, are you thirsty? Not just physically, though you may give them a nice cold brew on a hot day later this week or a drink of water, but use that as a way to ask them if they're spiritually thirsty. And I bet you, you will find that most are. Let's pray. Father, would you help us this very day to not just consider this story physically on a horizontal plane and realm. Would you help us to understand this story on a vertical spiritual realm? Lord, if there are those who are still thirsty because of their sin, and they have yet to trust in you, would you reveal that to them as you revealed to this woman? And might they come this very day and drink from the source of living waters who is you? And would they believe in you once and for all and find in their moment the peace that surpasses all understanding that this woman felt in that moment? Even right now, Lord, would you Give them a peace that only comes through repentance and confession of sin and faith in Jesus as you cause them to be born again and offer them new life. And Lord, would you help us as Christians to not fall prey to going back to using our old water jars to satisfy us. May we only be satisfied in you. And may we invite anyone and everyone who comes along our path to be satisfied in Christ alone. For Jesus, you are the source of living waters and you are the only object of true worship that will count for anything when we stand before you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your care for this woman that displays your care for us as well and your care for the world around us. May we, though weary and tired, never stop ministering to those that you care for around us. We love you. We praise you. For it's you alone who deserves our worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.